Hello, people of the way. Blessings in Jesus. If you have your Bible, please open up to Mark chapter 3, the book of Mark chapter 3. We continue our study through the New Testament. Now, in our prior studies, remember, we see in chapter 1 where we see the inception of the good news. And here in chapter 3, it's officially underway. And this is something that's presumably new because it's already been told by Moses and the prophets, and these are things that we touched on last week in our study in Mark chapter 2. And so now we see that this spreading of the good news, it's officially underway. And so let's observe what happens here in Mark chapter 3, verse 1. And he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. In verse 2, so they watched him closely whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that he so that they might accuse him. Now, look at the hearts of the religious leaders here. Look at their hearts because remember last week where within five minutes or two seconds where people were believing in Jesus. You see, like, you know, in the case of Nathaniel, like, boom, two seconds, he, he believed, you know, you are the Messiah. But not everyone. You know, not everyone, because we see the religious establishment. And yes, you know, here in verse 2, the where, you know, in verse 2 says, so they watched him closely. And yes, they're watching Jesus. But look at their hearts. Look at their hearts, because they want to accuse him. They want to accuse him, you know, whether he would heal him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. That's what is written here in verse 2. Now, according to the law. According to the law, certain things are put in motion with an accusation of breaking the law, which brings in the elders and the priesthood. And, you know, it can ultimately lead to stoning and death. And this is according to the law, according to the law. So when we look at the hearts of these religious leaders, remember, they're in synagogue. They're in synagogue, and it's the Sabbath, and they're watching Jesus, whether he would heal this particular individual who had a withered hand. And they're watching Jesus because they want to accuse him. You see, they want to accuse Jesus, but to what end? You see, what do they really desire? Because let's look at the law really quick. I mean, if you've been walking with us for a while, you remember in our study in the book of Exodus. But let's look what the law says in Exodus chapter 31. In Exodus 31. Open up your uh, Old Testament to Exodus chapter 31. And here in Exodus 31, verse 13, it is written, Surely my Sabbaths, my Sabbaths you shall keep. For it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And in verse 14, here in Exodus 31, you shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. And so what happens is that, you know, we can look at the teachings of Moses and, you know, Moses from whom, don't forget, he's a vessel and servant of the Lord. Remember our study in Hebrews? 
And so we look at these teachings and writings of Moses from whom the law came. And the religious establishment in the era of Mark 3, during uh, 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 the earthly ministry of Jesus, the religious establishment, they were using Moses as the foundation. You see, looking at the law of the Sabbath, because remember in Exodus chapter 31 and in, in, in verse 15, you know, whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. And the religious leaders in the era of Jesus during his earthly ministry, they want to use Moses as the foundation. And listen, that cannot be done. That cannot be done. And for my rabbi friends who are listening, I love you, but pay attention. Because if Moses is foundational, what does that say of Jacob? What does that say of Isaac? What does that say of Abraham? And what does that say of Noah? Are they to be excluded? Understand that prior to the law, we see something else. We see something else and you see that it accounted for righteousness. You see, how could Noah and Abraham be right with God outside of the law? Because in their era, in the era of Noah, in the era of Abraham, the law wasn't given. You see, the Ten Commandments were not given. And what do we see? What was it that accounted for righteousness? faith. You see? So Moses as foundational, he cannot be foundational. Now, remember, the religious leaders, they, they were the ones who placed so much credence and emphasis on Father Abraham, Father Abraham. They would always proclaim Father Abraham, Father Abraham. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, especially knowing the promises of God given to Abraham. But don't forget, Abraham himself was outside of the law of Moses. You see? In fact, it was the law of Abraham that almost killed Moses. And I speak of the law of circumcision. And it was the intercession of a woman that kept him alive. And we don't say that to denigrate women. It's like, you know, the intercession of a, a measly woman did that. No, 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 no. We say that to lift up the woman along with the man and illustrate the loopholes of the law to highlight another law in which there is no male or female. And this is the law of Christ. You see? This is the law of Christ. And this is something that Brother Paul knew very well. He taught very well. And for my rabbi friends, whom I love. For my rabbi friends, Paul, he's not, you know, run-of-the-mill type of fellow. Because before coming to Jesus, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees of the tribe of Benjamin. A student of Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was an instructor of Kohanim. So when we look at Paul in his B.C. days before he came to Christ, no, this isn't run-of-the-mill Pharisee. He knows his stuff. You see? He knows his stuff. A Pharisee of Pharisees, the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. And so now we look at Mark chapter 3 here. 
And in Mark chapter 3, the religious leaders and, you know, those who want to trap Jesus, who's speaking in synagogue because the scribes were there, the Pharisees were there, and it's on the Sabbath. And they're in synagogue and they want to see if Jesus is going to heal on the Sabbath. And what are they even doing there? What are they even doing there? Why are they even in synagogue? Why are they even in synagogue? Because these so-called leaders and learned ones, they're not accounting for the, it is also written concerning the Sabbath. And for my rabbi friends, it is also written in the teachings of Moses. It is also written in Exodus chapter 16. In Exodus chapter 16, verse 28. How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? It is written. Exodus 16, verse 28. See for the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. You see, there's no accounting for the it is also written. You say, wait a second, you're going backwards because, you know, we have to look at the Ten Commandments. But wait a second, what about Father Abraham? What about Father Abraham? You see? And so in the era of Mark chapter 3, in synagogue, in synagogue, on Sabbath, the religious leaders... They're already guilty. They're already breaking the law by not accounting for the it is also written. You see? Why are they even there? Because the true Sabbath? And don't forget our study last week, how Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And so the religious leaders, the scribes, they're they're watching Jesus. They're in synagogue in Mark chapter 3. They're in synagogue and they're just, they're watching Jesus. You know, we want to trap him because we have this law over here that says if he does any work that, you know, he's, you know, worthy of death and we get to kill him. But they're not accounting for the, it is also written. They're trying to trap Jesus. And here, you know, in the early part of Mark chapter 3, they haven't even said a thing. They haven't said a thing. They're just observing. They're just watching. And their very presence in synagogue reveals their hypocrisy. It reveals their uncleanness. And remember, only the clean can clean. Old Testament, New Testament, only the clean can clean. And still today, only the clean can clean. Very important to understand formula. And we also see a revealing of God's mercy. Because think of what Jesus could have done, but he didn't. Think of what Jesus could have done. You see? I mean, 
What's happening is something that has happened at various intervals throughout history where God is making himself known. But it's a very special people that have eyes to see and ears to hear to discern. Remember the woman at the well? She had it. She had it, you know. I mean, they had this beautiful, beautiful conversation, Jesus and this woman. Just them two, all alone. Remember, he sent the disciples away. She came down from the town to get her water. And they're just Jesus and this woman. And they're having a beautiful conversation. And she knew the scriptures. She knew that, yeah, you know, our, our fathers tell us about the coming Messiah. And Jesus reveals himself to her. I am he. And boom, she believes. You see, I mean, the conversation might have been five minutes, 10 minutes. But when Jesus reveals and says, I am he, boom, she believes. See, the woman at the well, she had it. She had it. And you look at these religious leaders in Mark chapter three. You look at these religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes. You look at them and they don't. What the woman at the well had, they don't. You see, remember Nathaniel, what he had, what Philip had, these religious leaders, they don't. And what is it? Soft hearts. They don't have soft hearts. The woman at the well, look at her beautiful heart. Soft, nice and soft. Look at Philip, Nathaniel, nice and soft. So when truth comes, their day of visitation, boom, you are the Messiah, they say to Jesus. You see? And these religious leaders, they don't have jello. They don't have balsa. Their hearts are hard. They're not quite stone. They're not quite stone, but their hearts are hard. You see? I mean, you know, Jesus on the throne at the right hand of God, there, there will be no, like, absolutely no doubt who he is at that time. I mean, when we see, there's like no doubt. I mean, to, to even see that, there's, there, all doubt is eliminated. Jesus returning on the clouds? Absolutely no doubt who he is when he returns on the clouds. Jesus standing on the Mount of Olives? Jesus on earth, once again, in fulfillment of the prophet Zechariah, there will be absolutely no doubt who he is. But today, right here, right now, it's a very special people who have absolutely no doubt who he is. Because these are things that are received by faith. You see? I mean, you look at people today, you see hard hearts and sometimes you even see stone hearts. You see hearts at various levels of hardness, but you also see the soft heart. And so to, to even like by faith, you and me, we know Jesus, he's at the right hand of God. And you know, right now for you and me, there's no doubt. And Jesus, when people look up at the clouds and they see Jesus riding on the clouds for 
both believer and non-believer, there will be no doubt. There will be no doubt. But today, 2023 AD, it's the believers who accept these truths by faith in what the word of God says, just like the woman at the well. Just like the woman, you have the religious establishment, the religious establishment, and they have all their years of study, of academia, of all this training and all these, you know, they wear the garb, they have the utensils, you know, depending on, you know, which of the Kohanim it is, you know, access to the Holy of Holies. I meant speaking of the high priest. And those who are being trained as the next high priest in preparation for doing these things written of Moses, you know, that that Moses wrote about. And then you have this woman at the well. I mean, not to speak negatively about her, but when you understand formula and you look at the hearts, you see, wow, the religious establishment Their hearts are like stone, not quite stone, but pretty close. But then you look at the woman, it's like, oh my goodness, what a beautiful heart. What a beautiful heart, because it was so soft that when Jesus revealed who he is, boom, she believes. You see? And so... The religious leaders in Mark chapter 3, they have the law. They have Moses. And yet, they're blind. They cannot see. You say, well, that was for 2,000 some years ago. Whoa, hold the phone. There's a religious establishment today. So prideful and arrogant in their so-called knowledge. And don't forget, you know... Love is the greatest gift and knowledge is a gift of the spirit, but it's not the greatest gift. And those who have the gift of knowledge know in part. They do not know in whole. They know in part. That's what the Bible says. And so you have these religious leaders. They stand on, oh, yeah, I have the academia. I've been studying the Bible and I've been studying, you know, vigorously studying the Bible for 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, 70 years. And then they look at, you know, somebody who's, you know, like a brand new believer. Somebody who's been a Christian for a week, a month. And they're like, oh, you know what? That that person could not, you know, that they don't know the Bible like I do. And you see the pride, the arrogance in the religious establishment. And you look at the woman at the well. You look at these religious leaders here in Mark chapter 3. The woman at the well, she doesn't have the breadth of knowledge that these religious leaders have. She has something better. Circumcision of heart. You see? Circumcision of heart. And these are things that the religious establishment, they can't touch. And it's so beautiful to see in those with soft hearts. With the hard heart, they're blind. They can't see. And so here we are in synagogue with our Lord here in Matthew or in Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. And look what our Lord says in verse 3. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Step forward. And he said, 
to them, notice the two camps here, the two audiences where, you know, to the singular audience, he says to the man with the withered hand, hey, step forward. But then to everybody else, he says to them, he asks them a question. And he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? And notice what happens. But they kept silent. You see, they were all silent. All of them. Was there no one who could discern? Remember, we're not at the marketplace. You know, we're not, you know, like in the fields. We're, 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 we're not with the tax collectors. We're in the synagogue here. We're in the synagogue with the religious establishment. In the presence of Pharisees and scribes. We're with the learned class. We're with those who supposedly, they're in the know. They have the academia, they have the books, they have the scrolls, they have, they have the scribes who study and write scrolls. And yet it's silent. Is there no one who could answer? The religious leaders, they have the training, they have the garb. And they were tasked many, many moons ago. They were tasked, very specific task, to keep God's people clean. And is there no one who could answer? Now, there might have been one. Maybe there were a couple. And we see this in the Gospel of John, how Nicodemus came to Jesus, and Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He comes to Jesus, but he does it discreetly. He does it at night. You see, he doesn't do it during the day. He does it when everybody's sleeping. And, you know, the religious establishment, we see a picture, the very fact that Nicodemus does these things, and he's a Pharisee, but the very fact that he does these things secretly at night and very discreet, we see how the religious establishment has like a, a monopoly on hearts and minds. And the people belong to God. They're God's people. I mean, remember with Eli and his two wicked sons? I shouldn't say Eli and his wicked sons. Remember with wicked Eli and his wicked sons? Look at how the Lord, when, when the formula is right when the priesthood, it's so beautiful. But when the formula is wrong in the priesthood, how can Israel be clean? How can Israel be pure before the Lord? And that's no small thing. It's a huge deal. It's no small thing. And then you see judgment come to the house of Eli. And remember, the Lord never changes. The Lord never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He never changes. The people belong to God. But understand, you know, there's a time of reason that always precedes a time of judgment. I mean, remember our study on Wednesday? It just so happens. It just so happens. The same thing happened with Pharaoh. A time of reason was allotted to Pharaoh. And it's the same with the Pharisees. And it's the same with people today. There's always a time of reason. And the Sabbath itself saves life. I mean, according to the law. I mean, you break it, you die. According to the law, the Sabbath itself saves life. And this is according to them, not to advocate the law, but, you know, there, there are certain promises in the law. 
But that we see when we look at the, I mean, you see the Ten Commandments and then you keep reading Torah, you look at Numbers and Deuteronomy and you see like, wow, there's all these promises that the law gives. But then you get to the book of Joshua, it's like, well, why why is Israel taking casualties? I mean, if there's rest and if there's promises for victory, why do we see Israel take casualties? And then we see, and the Lord reveals to us, it's because of the sin of Achan, sin in the camp. And when there's sin in the camp, do not expect victory. You see? Very important to understand. But then when the formula is right, boom, victory. And so every person here in synagogue, in Mark chapter 3, every single person here in synagogue is already guilty because they're supposed to be at home. They're already guilty. And yet they live. These are the people who should love the law's loopholes because they're alive. But because they're blind, they cannot understand what's happening. They cannot understand who is speaking to them in synagogue. I mean, they want to lean on Moses. They want to lean on the Ten Commandments and the law of Moses. They want to lean on that. But remember, I mean, with Philip and Nathaniel, They knew that Jesus, they knew that he fulfilled Moses and the prophets instantly. Instantly. And they received him as Lord. They received him as Messiah. You see? And yet these religious leaders in the synagogue. It's not just that they don't understand what's happening. They don't even understand that the fulfillment of the law is right there in front of them. Don't forget last week, Jesus, he already says to the Pharisees in chapter 2, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. And so in synagogue, Jesus, he asked a simple question. A simple question. And it's quiet. It's quiet. Everybody kept silent. Now, if we were in the marketplace, I mean, you know, who would be there that would know? If we were out in the field, who would be there that would know? If we were out with the fishermen, who would be there that would, you know, who would know? If we were with the tax collectors, if we were with the prostitutes, who would be there that would know? But we're in synagogue. We're in synagogue. We're with the people that should know. And we're in synagogue on the Sabbath. That synagogue should be empty because everybody should be at home. You see? And everybody's silent when Jesus asks these questions. Everybody's quiet. And so look at verse 5. And when he had looked around, Jesus, when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. You see, that's what a hard heart does. No one could answer this simple question. 
because there is no understanding. There is no knowledge. And this is synagogue on the Sabbath. Why are they even there? Is it all for show? And you might even wonder, you might ask, you know, well, why was Jesus grieved and angry? Understand, we're in synagogue. These people, they're the religious establishment. Scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, these are the people that are in the, they're in the know in terms of academia, in terms of the law of Moses. the so-called experts in the law. And here they are wanting to trap Jesus while themselves being hypocrites and breaking the law. You see? And remember, the purpose of the priesthood from the very get, the purpose of the priesthood, remember the law is the additive, but the purpose of the priesthood is so that Israel can be clean before the Lord. So that Israel can be pure before the Lord. You see? There's absolutely a priesthood that we see here. There's absolutely the Levites, the Kohanim. There's absolutely scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees. Absolutely, we see it. But what we don't see is Aboda, Aboda, Mishkan. Now, if you're listening for the first time, you're like, what is that? Go and listen to our study through Leviticus. Very important. You have a priesthood, but what you don't have is Abodah, Abodah, Mishkan, just like our study in Judges. You have the priesthood, but look at the priests. You got a priest over here with his idols. You got a priest over here who's a sex head. He didn't have a, a wife as wife. He has a wife as concubine. You see? And he literally threw her to the wolves. And she was gang-raped all night and she died in the morning. Remember our study in Judges? Very sobering, very hard. Hard study to, to read and discuss and describe. But we come to the understanding that, oh my goodness, like, yes, there's, there's the Levites. There's the Kohanim. There's a priesthood. But there is no Abodah, Abodah, Mishkan. And it's the same thing here in Mark chapter 3. You have a priesthood. But there is no Abodah, Abodah, Mishkan. What has happened? What has happened? Oh, Israel, what has happened? And so Israel, as a result, is not clean. Israel is not pure before the Most High God. And Jesus, he's in synagogue with the very ones who have a very specific responsibility unto the Lord. And that's why he's grieved. That's why he's angry. Where in the world is Abodah, Abodah, Mishkan? Amen. You remember last week what was said about, you know, the Calvinists and Reformed, how they have very big problems with their theology? And, you know, it can, say, it, it can be said again here. And if you're Calvinist or Reformed, I love you. 
But it can be said again where the Calvinists and Reformed have very major problems with their brand of theology. Because if God has mercy on whom he has mercy according to how the Calvinist interprets, and if God predestines people to hell for his glory according to the teachings of Calvinism and Reformed theology, then why would Jesus be in synagogue here among the blind and grieve? Why would he grieve? Why would Jesus grieve? over a people who are blind when according to Calvinism they're supposed to burn in hell and give glory to God according to Calvinism you see but according to the truth of the Holy Bible no Jesus is in a synagogue and he's grieving he's angry why would he even grieve you see Because according to Calvinism, they're blind because God hardened their heart. Because they're predestined to hell. And they're going to burn in hell in order to glorify God by their burning. And if Calvinism were true, if that were true, Jesus should rejoice. Jesus should rejoice because God is glorified in the path to hell that these people are on. But we don't see that in the Bible. We don't see Jesus rejoicing. We see Jesus grieving. We see him grieving. And it's just like we read about in the Old Testament and New Testament that God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. You see? Very important to understand. And if you're Calvinist or Reformed, I love you. But come out of her, my people. Go and listen to our studies on Calvinism. Go to thewayunderground.com and you can listen to all those studies. Very important to understand because it's very dangerous because it's the Calvinists and Reformed pastors that are telling Christians that, hey, it's okay to take the mark of the beast, you'll still be saved. If you're Calvinist or Reformed and you yield to those pastors, the Bible says you're going to burn in hell. You see? Very important to understand we're in the last days. It's not a time to play games. And not to suggest that there was ever a time in history where it was okay to play games. But now more than ever, not a time to play games. We have to be right before the Lord according to what the Word of God says. Not according to the writings and the teachings of man. But according to the Holy Bible. Genesis to Revelation and everything in between. So here in synagogue with Jesus, look what happens here. And he said to the man here in verse 5, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was restored as whole as the other. Whoa. In synagogue, Jesus performing miracle. Healing. But then look what happens. Remember, the religious leaders, they're there. Because they want to trap Jesus. They were silent when Jesus asked them a simple question and they kept silent. And now in verse 6, then the Pharisees went out and immediately, immediately plotted with the Herodians against him. How they might destroy him. Look at their hearts. Look at the hearts of stone. If not fully stone, look how hard these hearts of 
the hardest pine wood is. It's on its way. It's, it's not jello. Definitely not jello. It's not balsa. Definitely not balsa. Not maple. It's not oak. You get into pine, it's like, okay, now we're getting warmer. But it's like, you know, super duper hard pine. Almost stone, but not quite. But look at the hardness of the hearts. And these are men who have broken the law. And they want to destroy the law's fulfillment. And the Pharisees, what they do is they plot with the Herodians. Now, who are the Herodians? Now, in this time period, in this time period, Herod is king. And the Herodians are a political faction that appeal to Herod. And what we begin to see here is the beginning of pressure against Jesus. But it's by both the religious establishment and the political establishment and the pressure only intensifies. We're starting to see the beginning of this pressure that begins to intensify. And it's just like our study in Wednesday with the priests of the Philistines. It just so happens. It just so happens. It would have been much easier, much easier if the religious leaders repented. It would have been much easier if the religious leaders in the camp of the Philistines, it would have been much easier if the Philistine priests, if they repented, said, hey, let's get rid of Dagon. Let's destroy Dagon. And, you know, let's let's worship the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Remember our study in First Samuel? It would have been much easier if the religious leaders of the Philistines did that as the Lord made himself known. And here with the religious leaders. It would have been much easier if the religious leaders repented and believed in Jesus. If they believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if they believed in Moses, if they believed in the Most High God bringing forth His only begotten Son, it would have been much easier for them in this life and the life to come. Understand, everybody has a choice to make. Everybody has a choice to make. And so we see here in verse 7, Mark chapter 3, verse 7, but Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. Now, at this time, things are amping up in terms of danger. It's getting dangerous to be a follower of Jesus. The religious and political establishment are officially plotting now. They're officially in cahoots, and it's to destroy Jesus. And so Jesus goes to the sea with his disciples in verse seven, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him. So remember, at the same time, word is quickly spreading about Jesus from town to town. Word is spreading. Oh, he does miracles. He heals the sick and the paralyzed. He casts out demons. People are saying he's the Messiah. The priest can't even answer his questions. And so word is spreading quickly. And so what's happening is that these multitudes, great multitudes are following Jesus. And so it's from Galilee. You know, and we see here in verse seven, a great multitude from Galilee followed him and from Judea and Jerusalem in verse eight and Idumea and beyond the Jordan and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude when they heard how many things he was doing came to him. You see? Now, 
This isn't a bad thing at all. Coming to Jesus is a beautiful thing. Following Jesus is a beautiful thing. But there's something deeper that the disciples will learn soon and they'll learn even to a greater degree when they're apostles. And you know what that is? Abiding in Jesus. Abiding in Jesus. Coming to Jesus, beautiful. Following Jesus, good. Abiding in Jesus, Whew. it's night and day. Remember when Jesus says, abide in me? No period. He says, abide in me and I in you. You in him and him in you. Remember, we're at the inception of the gospel here in Mark chapter 3. I mean, we're the early, early stages here. Much more is going to happen. But things have begun. The Lord is making himself known and the crowds are coming to Jesus. Now, I don't want to sound fleshy or carnal in saying this, but it presents some logistical issues. And so here in verse nine, look what happens. So he told his disciples that he told his disciples uh, uh, that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. Now, that's how big the crowds were. That's how big the crowds were. Yes, there are logistical matters, you know, like, you know, hey, guys, have a small boat ready. But the reason was because the people would crush him. And understand what's happening here from, you know, our, our Lord, Jesus, son of the most high, our king, our master. He's being pressed on all sides. The religious establishment the political establishment, and even the people. He's being pressed. He's being pressed. And unbeknownst to a lot of people in this particular era, it's in fulfillment of prophecy. Because in order for oil to come from the olive, it must be pressed. And in like manner, so too our Lord is being pressed. Very important to understand what the prophets say. Remember when Peter, when Peter, when our Lord was arrested and Peter busted out his sword to protect Jesus? And Jesus tells him, Peter, put away your sword, he says. And then, you know, he asked Peter a question. He says, don't you know? Don't you know I can call upon my father and he will send 12 legions of angels? I mean, you know, when you look at the things that our Lord could have done. 12 legions of angels. I mean, Peter, he busted out his sword, you know, like, you know, he, he was going to handle business. And he, you know, he, he cut off the ear of one of the one of the guards. And, you know, he was that, that, that Jesus restored his ear. But Jesus tells him, Peter, don't you know that I can call upon my father and he will send 12 legions of angel, 12 legions of angels. When remember, just one angel, one angel destroyed the Assyrian army, one angel. The Assyrian army destroyed by just one angel. And he's asking Peter, hey, Peter, don't you know? 
that my father will send 12 legions of angels if I call upon him? Very important to understand. And when Jesus asked Peter on that dreadful night, Peter, don't you know? Peter, don't you know? Our Lord Jesus, he also asks, how then could scripture be fulfilled? How then could scripture be fulfilled? You see, Jesus, he's fulfilling the law and the prophets. Mockers and scoffers might say, Jesus wants to have a boat ready? He wants to have a boat? You Christians thinks he has some kind of power and look here, you know, he needs a boat, you know, in case the crowds crush him. That's what mockers and scoffers would say. But when you understand what's happening, while factoring what our Lord could have done, I meant, you know, angels for protection, angels for crowd control. But then you understand Jesus, he's fulfilling. Fulfilling the law and the prophets. And again, in order for oil to come, there must first be a pressing. And these multitudes we see here, the numbers will dwindle to zero where there's going to be no followers of Jesus when Jesus is on a cross and being pressed to the point of death. Even still, fulfillment of the law and the prophets. You see, when you think and factor in, think about what our Lord could have done and factor in what our Lord could have done. When he says to Peter, Peter, put your sword away. I could call upon my father and 12 legions of angels would be here. But yet he doesn't do that. And he's on the cross dying. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's heavy. That's heavy. That's very heavy. Understand that every jot and every tittle of the law and prophets will be fulfilled. But now, now we have an additive. Every jot and every tittle of the law and the prophets and the apostles will be fulfilled. And I speak of the New Testament. Because there's prophecies in both covenants. Pertaining to the exact same event. You see? And today we're living in another era of fulfillment. And today we also see something similar. The religious and political establishment. And they're blind. They're blind. Followers of them, they're blind. And they, yet again, will press Jesus. And it's Jesus in the form of his bride. And it's the last day's persecution of the saints. You see? And in verse 10, for he healed many. So the multitude, you know, Jesus tells his disciples, hey, you know, have a boat nearby, you know, just in case, you know, have a, have a boat nearby because the crowds, they were like, they were heavy. 
And in verse 10, for he healed many. He healed many so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. Remember the writings of Brother James? In our study in the book of James? Where even the demons believe they know exactly who Jesus is. They know exactly. And so in verse 12, But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. Very interesting when we see passages like this, when Jesus tells people not to say anything. You know, Jesus would heal and he'd say, hey, don't, don't tell anybody. Why is that? Why is that? You'd think that the message of healing, that, that's a good thing, that you want this message to go forth. you think that that's a good thing. And don't get me wrong, the good news going forth is a good thing. And healings happening and demons being cast out, those are good things. So does that mean that Jesus is using some kind of reverse psychology to achieve things? And I've heard pastors suggest such a thing. I've heard pastors say that Jesus is using reverse psychology by urging people to be silent about his works. But those are carnal pastors without understanding who have no business in the pulpit. I mean, what if Jesus told people not to say anything, and they really didn't say anything. What if the people obeyed him by not saying anything? I mean, the, the earthly ministry of Jesus could have been extended from, say, three years to maybe five years, maybe even 10 years, maybe even longer. And when you read the Bible, you start to see something with the people in the Bible. Good and bad, wicked and righteous but you start to see something with the people. And you know what that is? Choice. Choice. I mean, you look when, when Jesus says, you know, to his disciples, you know, have a boat ready. You know, the, the disciples, you know, are, are we going to need the boat? Are we not going to need the boat? What's going to happen? Does that mean, you know, is this for like a just in case kind of thing? But you see something happen with the people of the Bible, and that's choice. Very important to understand in both Testaments, Old Testament and New Testament, and still today, people have a choice to make. Because we have the, it is written in the pages of Scripture, but whether we see the, it is written on hearts, that's something entirely different. That's something entirely different because, you know, you can open up the pages of Judges. You can open up the book of Judges and you see many, many, many it is written in the book of Judges. But where do you see it is written? On the hearts. You see? You see it in Deborah. You see it with Ehud. You see it with Jephthah. You see it with Jephthah's daughter. You see it is written on their hearts. Very important to understand. The people have a choice to make. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and still today, people have a choice to make. When we see the, you know, you, you see all the, all the knocks, all the knocks that have been happening for many moons now and it's still happening today. 
all the knocks. And in the Bible, we see things happen between God and people. Good and bad, wicked and righteous. We see things happen between God and people, but notice it happens organically. There's no manipulation, no coercion or reverse psychology. I mean, look at Egypt. Look at Egypt. When the might of Egypt was destroyed by the sea, a sea that opened for Israel. I mean, you take the day of that event when the might of Egypt was destroyed and you know the, the, the sea opens, Israel passes, Egypt follows, boom, the sea closes, everybody's dead. The might of Egypt destroyed. Now, five minutes later from that event, five minutes later, no one, no one doubted the Lord because he revealed himself through his work. Five minutes later, everybody believed. And that's a good thing. Very sobering what happened there. But five minutes later, nobody doubted. Everybody believed. But what about five years later? What about five decades later? What about five centuries later? Would we still see belief and trust like we did at the five minute mark? And you do see it, but it's only, only, only with the remnant. Because five years later, people start forgetting. Five decades later, more people forget. 500 years, the masses forget. It's only the remnant that remembers. I mean, when you look at the Bible, when you look at the Bible and look at the major movements of God, not to diminish any of his mighty works at all, but when you look at the biggies like creation and Exodus, Jesus and the return of Jesus, and not to be irreverent in saying this, but that's the book of Genesis, the book of Exodus, the book of Mark, and the book of Revelation. Four books. Four books. But there's 62, 62. 62 more books in the Bible. Here we are in 2023 AD. We're somewhat distanced from these works of God. We're presently in 2023 AD. We're presently distanced from creation from Exodus, from the earthly ministry of Jesus, but we're not so distant from the return of Jesus. And who is it that believes today? More importantly, who is it that believes and obeys? It's only, only, only the remnant. And so we look at these major works of God throughout history, but there's something else. That the works of God in the Bible also include workers of God. And to be a worker of God, a person must first be in the family of God. And there's only one way that happens. And that's through Jesus. The only way. The way, the truth, and the life. No one comes 
to the Father, but through me. That's what Jesus says. Those are the words of our Lord. No one comes to the Father, but through Jesus. And the Bible says that angels rejoice at one sinner that repents and comes to Jesus. One sinner that repents and comes to Jesus. You might be listening right now. And that might be you. You're not a believer. You might be listening and you're, you know what? I'm straight up done with this life. I'm straight up done with my life of sex and drugs and rock and roll and alcohol and no, the whole nine yards. I'm done with the Buddha. I'm done with the Ouija boards. I'm straight up done. Well, praise the Lord. There is a better way. Angels rejoice at one sinner that repents and comes to Jesus. And that might be you. Where the angels rejoice because you want to repent and receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. And if that's you, hit pause, listen to the message, how to commit your life to Christ. You commit your life to Christ right here, right now. And you come back to this study, you hit play, and then we continue to study the Word of God together. We continue to grow together. We continue to mature together. We continue in this journey because we're going to paradise. Very important to understand what the Word of God teaches, what the Word of God says, because we're in the last days. And so look what happens here in verse 13. And Jesus, and he went up on the mountain and called to him those who those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. Now, what's happening here is Jesus is appointing the 12 disciples. And, you know, for my Calvinist and Reformed friends, the Gospel of John says that Jesus chose the twelve. Jesus chose the twelve. Eklegomai in the Greek, and yet one is a devil. Very interesting. Very interesting for my Calvinist and Reformed friends. And I say again, come out of her, my people. And so here in Mark, we see their names. In Mark chapter 3, verse 16, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, and that is sons of thunder. Now, he translates as, you know, he gave the, uh, like the surname. So now they're sons of thunder. And we see here in verse 18, there's Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Th- uh, Th- Thaddeus, Simon, the Simon the Canaanite and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And they went into a house. And so what's happening here is Jesus, he was with a multitude. And he was healing and casting out demons. And what happens is that he goes into like a, he goes to a mountain and calls out a select group. He calls out a select group, 12 in number, the disciples. And they go into a house. Now, this particular house is probably one of immediate family member or close relative or, you know, the immediate biological family lives, you know, this particular house. And for me personally, I would say biological brother in the manner of Adam. In the manner of Adam, 
biological brother and we'll explain this more you know when i say biological uh, brother this is in the ways of adam okay another son of mary and joseph and we're going to explain this so what's happening is the 12 disciples you know you using the gospels of mark and john the 12 disciples are called chosen which is eklagomai in the greek appointed and empowered and I say it like that for my Calvinist friends. My Calvinist friends, I love you. But I also say, come out of her, my people. So you have these 12 disciples who are called, chosen, eklagomai, appointed, and empowered. And Jesus and the 12, they're in a house now. And this is the house of another son of Mary. And we'll explain that. And then the, the multitude, they find Jesus and they come to him. And look what happens here in verse 20. Then the multitude came together again so that they could not they could not so much as eat bread. Now, we're going to paint a picture here using all the gospels combined. So what's happening is Jesus, he was with the multitudes and he was healing many. And then he breaks away from that group of the multitudes and goes up on a mountain but he calls 12. He chooses 12. Eklagomai. He chooses 12. Then what happens is Jesus and the 12, they enter his own brother's home. This is biological. According to Adam, another son of Mary. According to Adam, they go into another son of Mary's home. One of his own, according to Adam, who do not believe. They don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And we see that in the book of John, chapter 7, verse 5. They don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And so they're in the home. They're about to eat. And then the multitudes come to the house. And they could not so much as eat bread. Now, don't forget. That with the multitudes were also the Pharisees and scribes, the religious establishment. Let's not forget that. Very important to remember. And so Jesus, what happens is he then goes outside the house, leaving the home of what is biological, according to Adam. And he goes outside to the multitude. Now, remember, we're, we're combining the gospels and saying it like this. We're combining, you know, multiple gospels in order to paint this picture so that we can understand and see what's happening. And we put the puzzle pieces together so that we can understand what is happening here. So Jesus goes outside and he goes to the multitude. And in verse 21, look what happens here in Mark chapter 3, verse 21. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. He is out of his mind. That's what they said. So his own people, this is biological family, according to Adam. They don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. In fact, they think, as we see here in verse 21, they think he's out of his mind. They think he's crazy. His own biological family. Remember, something that Philip knew now, yes, Jesus is the son of Joseph and Mary. Yes, you know, that's where the biological family, according to Adam, that's where it stopped. That, you know, Jesus is the son of Joseph and Mary, and boom, that's it. That's where biological family, that's the extent of what they knew. But with Philip, with Nathaniel, the woman at the well, by what 
Eyes can see with real eyes to see and ears to hear. Philip knew. Nathaniel knew. The woman at the well knew. Yeah, yeah. Jesus is the son of Joseph and Mary. But Philip also knew that Moses and the prophets wrote of Jesus. You see? And that what biological, according to Adam, could not see? That's the family. The extent of their knowledge at the particular time was only that of the flesh. You see? And you also see a little picture of a hard heart, but it's not stone. It's not pine. We'll say it's balsa. It's not jello. We want softer than the softest jello, but they don't have hearts like that. You see? Philip does. The woman at the well does. Nathaniel does. But biological family? It's not stone. It's not pine. It's not oak. We're in the balsa territory. But it's still a hardness of heart. Remember, we want the objective is softer than the softest jello. That's the heart we want because that's where we see circumcision. And so... Let's say, for example, you and me, you and me, we're outside the multitude, we're outside the crowd, and we see what the biological family, we see that, wow, they think Jesus is crazy. But now they also know that the crowds can be dangerous. And so, you know, the, the, the biological family, they say, you know, we think he's crazy, but he's our brother. So let's go get him. And we see that in verse 21, the biological family, they go out to lay hold of Jesus. So we're painting this picture using all the gospels combined. And we're painting this picture. So we see, you know, they're in their house. The crowds come. They can't even eat bread. And so Jesus goes out to the multitude and, you know, he's there with the multitude. And then a, a, a little period of time that the family. Family, the biological family, the brothers, and even Mary, they say, you know, like, you know, the brothers, you know, we think he's crazy, but you know what? Let's go get him. And we see that in verse 21. And so now you and me were outside the multitude observing the biological family. But meanwhile, remember Jesus, he went outside to, to, to the multitude. And meanwhile, you know, when his brothers were thinking like, man, he's crazy. You know, he, he, these people see him as the Messiah. He, he, you know, he says he's the son of God. And, you know, he's crazy. We don't believe because look, he's, you know, we got mom and dad. We got, you know, Mary and Joseph. And so, you know, yeah, our brother's. You know, he's kind of crazy, you know, and, you know, he's out of his mind. He's out of his mind. That's what we see here in verse 21. And so we see a hardness of heart. It's not stone. It's not stone. It's not pine. Maybe it's like balsa, maple somewhere in there. It's definitely not jello. We like jello. We want jello. You see? That's what we want. Just like Philip. Just like Nathaniel, just like the woman at the well. Jesus, look at the woman at the well. Jesus says, you know, she, she says, you know, you know, our fathers tell us the Messiah is coming. Jesus says, you know, I am he. And boom, she believes you are the Messiah. But then you look at the brothers. They look at the brothers like, wow, these people call Jesus the Messiah. And, you know, we think he's crazy because we have, you know, Joseph and Mary. We have mom and dad right here. But what they don't see is according to the spirit. According to the Spirit. You see? 
And so you and me, we were, you know, observing, you know, what was happening with the biological family. But now let's you and me, let's go to Jesus in the multitude. And remember, the multitude includes the religious establishment. And we know, remember in, our, in the earlier in our study, we know that the religious establishment with the political establishment, they're plotting to destroy Jesus. They're plotting against him. And so we see in verse 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. Now notice the behavior here of the religious establishment where they're following Jesus. And that seems to be good to be a follower of Jesus. It seems to be a good thing, but we know that they're following because they want to trap him. They want to destroy him. So understand, following Jesus is not the same as abiding in Jesus. Following Jesus is not the same as abiding in Jesus. Following Jesus is more like the lukewarm. Where, you know, you're following and following and following, but wow, look over here. You know, I kind of like this over here. Instead of walking on this narrow path, I think I'm going to take a left turn and walk down this other path for a little bit. I think I'm going to take a right turn and walk down this other little path a bit because I like it. Following Jesus is more, more closely resembled to the way of the lukewarm. And I say this as former lukewarm. You see? It's not the same as abiding in Jesus. And don't forget, Jesus says, abide in me, no period. And I in you. Intimacy with Jesus Christ, Son of the Most High. And I don't say this if you're walking with Christ or you're, you're, you're following Jesus. You're following Jesus and, you know, you still have like problems and issues in life. Understand, we're always going to have problems and issues in life. But there is victory in Christ. And sometimes you hear people talk about victory in Christ and they just, they just talk about victory, victory, victory. And it's like, you want to believe it, but you're like, well, how come I don't have victory in my life? Understand the formula is very specific because it's holy. It's not to say that you can't have victory, but with the wrong formula, you can't have victory. With the right formula, boom, victory. You see? Following Jesus is more the way of the lukewarm. But abiding in Jesus, it's worlds apart. And abiding in Jesus is the way of the remnant. You see? And abiding in Jesus, that's where you and me, that's where we want to be. You see? And so these scribes here in verse 22, they're calling Jesus satanic. You know, he has Beelzebub. By the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. In verse 23, so he called them to himself. And this is in a direct way. He's calling them out. He's, you know, come here. I'm going to address what you say. That's what's happening here. You know, we're, we're, we, we've seen the house where, you know, remember Jesus was on the mountain. He calls the 12 and then they go to the house to eat. And, you know, Mark says, you know, they went into this house. But when you look at the other gospels, you see like, well, this is a house of like family. 
And so they're in the house of family. They were going to eat and they, the crowds came. They can't even eat bread. So Jesus goes out and he's boom. He's back with the crowds. He's back with the multitudes. And in the multitudes is where you have the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders, the re religious establishment that is now in unison and in cahoots with the political establishment. And they want to kill Jesus. They're plotting against Jesus. They're plotting to destroy Jesus. And in that vein, what happens in the crowd, Jesus, you know, the, the, he goes out to, to the crowd and it's the, the political, the religious establishment, the scribes, they say he has Beelzebub. He's doing it by the rulers, the, the, by the ruler of demons to cast out demons. And so Jesus just calls him out, he says, okay, come here, come here. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. And meanwhile, don't forget the, the brothers, the family at home in the house. They're like, man, you know, we think he's crazy. You know, like, you know, he's out of his mind. He's out of his mind. So meanwhile, that's happening in the house. But, you know, we're with we're inside the crowd with Jesus and what's happening here. And in verse 23, so he called them to himself and said to them in parables, in parables. Now, notice. Jesus he spoke plainly to them before. But now, truth is becoming more hidden. To the disciples, Jesus reveals the parables. But to the religious establishment, what's happening is truth is starting to become veiled. It's a famine of the word of God. And this is a famine of the word of God and the famine of the truth of the word of God. Don't forget, the word became flesh. It's a famine to those who reject him. And so Jesus calls the scribes and he responds to them. He responds and he, he asks a question, another question. How can Satan cast out Satan? That's what he asks of the, of the scribes who say, who they, they point out he, he's Beelzebub. You know, he does this by the, the ruler of the demons. And Jesus just flat out says, he calls him. Okay, come here. Let's talk about that. How can Satan cast out Satan? Now, remember, the scribes, they're calling Jesus Beelzebub. And for my rabbi friends, whom I love, but for my rabbi friends, especially those of the more liberal type, the Reformed Jews in the, in the Jewish tradition, in the era of Caiaphas, in the era of Caiaphas, even they didn't dispute Satan as a mere Christian concept. And so... Using that logic and line of thinking of these scribes that, you know, Jesus, don't forget, you know, in, the, in these miracles that are happening here among the multitudes is that Jesus has cast out demons. He's cast out demons and unclean spirits. And the scribes are the ones who are saying, oh, he, he does it by the ruler of the demons. And so Jesus just asks a simple question. How can Satan cast out Satan? He continues here in verse 24. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. And in verse 27 no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. And so Jesus, what he does is he takes their accusation. 
and he uses their logic to reveal foolishness. How can Satan cast out Satan? And then he goes further to reveal even more that Satan cannot stand, that Satan has an end. And then he reveals even more that the strong man must be bound and then his house will be plundered. And Jesus, what he's doing is he's revealing the plot of the establishment and he's telling them, hey, I know what you guys are up to. And he's speaking to them in parables. He's saying, I know what you're up to. I mean, sometimes, you know, I have conversations with younger Christians and not younger in age per se, but young in the faith. And they ask, you know, why is Jesus called a thief in the night? And let's say, for example, just for example, let's say you and me are roommates. You and me are roommates and we have something very precious to us where we live. Very precious. But then a group of guys come from another town, they break into our house, and then they bind us together to chairs. And we're bound and we can't move. And what do they do? They steal what is precious to us. They take it. And now we're removed from what is precious to us, you know, because now it's being carried away by the thieves and they return to their own town and they return to their home. And in the course of time, we become unbound. And what is precious to us is still precious to us. And then we go get it. And so we go to their town, we go in their town, we go in their home, and we're going to enter as a thief. You see? We're going to take what is ours, what is precious to us, what has always been precious to us, and we're coming for it. You see, are we the bad guys? No, we're just coming to get what was, what was ours, what was taken. And in like manner, Jesus will return as a thief to take what is precious to him, what has always been precious to him. And so in the multitude here in Mark chapter three, in this multitude, Jesus, he's calling out the scribes. And he's speaking to them in parables. And Jesus is telling the scribes, I know what you guys are up to. And he continues here in verse 28. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is subject to eternal condemnation. And so we remember that the Holy Spirit hasn't yet poured from heaven. Okay, the pressing, it's begun. But the Holy Spirit hasn't yet poured from heaven. That happens when Jesus ascends to our Father. Hallowed be His name. It happens when Jesus ascends to our Father in heaven. But don't forget, the Spirit has come down upon Jesus already like a dove. And we see something that the scribes and Pharisees, they begin to teeter on. And to this day, people are still teetering on something very dangerous, extremely dangerous. And it happens through a hardening of the heart. And what it is, it's condemnation. It's condemnation. 
I mean, we see the scribes and they're plotting against Jesus. It's like, okay, it's, it, we're, we're not at the stone heart yet. We're not at the heart of stone just yet, but whoa, we're awfully close. We're awfully close because Jesus is no longer speaking plainly with them like he did before. Now he's speaking to them in parables. So when a heart becomes hard, all of a sudden what happens is that truth starts to become veiled. Truth starts to become withheld. And these are kind of like precursory things to judgment. Very important to understand. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. And it's condemnation. These are all stepping stones that lead to condemnation. And today, this present door of mercy and grace, it's been open for 2,000 years, give or take a couple years. It's not going to be open forever. It's still open today, but it's not wide open like it was 2,000 years ago, give or take a couple years. Understand that there is coming a time when the door of grace will be closed. The same way the, the door of the ark was closed. And it was God that closed the door. And Jesus tells us that the last days will be like the days of Noah. They're good. It's going to be as the days of Noah. And understand that condemnation, it happens for a reason. And we see here in verse 30, because they said he has an unclean spirit. Remember, they were calling him satanic. They were calling, oh, he, he, he casts out demons because of Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. He casts out demons because of Satan. And so in that, following that line of logic, Jesus reveals their foolishness. He also reveals that Satan has an end. He also reveals that, hey, I know what you guys are up to, but he's speaking to them in parable. Remember, he, he, he did speak openly and plainly with them, but now he's speaking in parables. He's no longer speaking openly and plainly. You see? And remember, the harder the heart, the harder to receive. Have you ever spoken about biblical truths to like, a three-year-old, a four-year-old, a five-year-old. You start talking to a child about beautiful heavenly things and their eyes get wide like saucers. Like, what? Oh my goodness. Wow. And it's so be But then you have the same converse conversation with like a 25-year-old. And they're like, not even like, you know, no, no big eyes like saucers. Now they're like little eyes like, you're so dumb. You're so stupid. You see? And you look at the hearts of Jello. You look at the heart of a beautiful four-year-old child, a beautiful five-year-old child, and the heart is soft and easy to receive certain things that are holy. But then you look at the heart of a 20-year-old. You look at the heart of a 25-year-old. And what we desire to see is a heart that's even softer than it was at age four. But most of the time, you don't see that. You see a harder heart. You see a heart that is, it's more difficult for them to receive biblical truths. Because it's a constant rejection. A rejection of the Lord over and over and over. Where 
You know, they might have heard of Jesus at age 10, but then, you know, somebody talked them out of it. They might have heard of Jesus at age 20, but somebody talked them out of it. Don't forget what happens when that seed is planted. Satan doesn't want that seed in anybody's heart. Very important to understand what happens in the supernatural, the spirit realm. And so at age 25, somebody, you know, the seed goes in and Satan doesn't want that seed to find fertile soil in your heart. At age 30, and you see hearts become harder. And, you know, sadly, sometimes hearts are hard because of Christians. Because of wicked men at pulpits, you see hard hearts. People who say, I want nothing to do with Jesus. You ask them why. And if they open up to you, they'll tell you, because I was molested when I went to church. And they don't understand because they don't have that knowledge base or they don't have that understanding. They don't understand that, wait, the church you went to? You should have never been there because the formula was wrong. You see? There are certain things to look for to understand that, yes, this this church is a biblical church. It is safe to submit to this pastor. It is safe to submit to these elders because they watch out for my soul. But the formula, it has to be right because a person submitting to just willy-nilly pastor, no way, that cannot be done because pastors now, you're seeing an overflowing of wolves, charlatans, hirelings, whose God is their belly. You see the pastors becoming rich. Very important to understand. And, the, and Jesus says, you know, the hirelings, the ones where, you know, they're concerned about their bellies and their wallets, they don't care for the sheep. Jesus says that. And so in these last days, you're seeing hearts become harder and harder and harder. And there are key indicators. But understand that, you know, the rejection of Jesus has ramifications. I mean, we see it here with the scribes. And in Mark chapter 3, we see it with the scribes. Because remember, not too long ago, he just spoke openly with them. He didn't speak to them in parables. But now he's speaking to them in parables. Where truth is, it's still there, but it's veiled. You see, it's veiled. And Jesus is not only telling the scribes, you know, I know what you're up to. You know, he's also warning them. You guys are teetering on condemnation. You see, you want to reject the Holy Spirit? You want to reject who I am, the fulfillment of the law whom Moses wrote about, the fulfillment of the prophets, and you want to reject? You're teetering on condemnation. Now, remember, he's speaking to the learned class. He's speaking to the scribes, and they have a very specific task to keep Israel clean and pure. But how can that happen when the Lord has become forgotten? It's just like our studies in 1 Samuel. It's just like our studies in Judges. How can that happen? How can Israel be clean and pure when the Lord has become forgotten? You see, in the synagogue, when we started our study here in Mark chapter 3, they're all guilty. Everybody there in synagogue is guilty. And yet, they're, and Jesus speaks plainly and openly. And they were all silent. 
you see? And they're in synagogue and they're all guilty. And the only one who is biblically qualified, according to the law, the only one who is able to cast stones, doesn't. Instead, he heals the guy's hand. See? This is the dreadful thing, what happens when the Lord becomes forgotten. How can Israel be clean? How can Israel be pure? And then we look at the church age. When the Lord has become forgotten, how can God's people, how can Christians, how can believers be clean? You see? And you say, well, wait a minute, there's a movement of the Spirit here. There's a movement of the Spirit there. And look, all these movements are happening and people are accepting Jesus as though, look, they go to this, this revival and people are becoming Christians. Isn't that a good thing? Well, when we understand formula, when we understand formula, we can discern and understand, like, wait a second. If, if when a person comes to Christ, when there's, a, when there's a, a, a revival, a biblical, a true revival, People, they renounce their drugs, their alcohol, their homosexuality, their lesbianism. They renounce their heterosexual sin. They renounce, and they get right with the Lord and they live purely in Christ. And that's a beautiful thing. But when somebody comes to Christ, an alcoholic, and, you know, they come to Christ, alcoholic, and all of a sudden, oh, look, revival, revival, I believe in Jesus. But then, you know, that night they're getting drunk again. That's not a revival. Somebody has their heterosexual sin, having sex like crazy. They go to revival, oh, I believe, I believe. And then all of a sudden they go back to their sex, their lesbianism, their homosexuality. They go back to that. It's like, well, wait a second. Remember, following Jesus and abiding in Jesus are not the same. And then somebody says, well, wait a second, we have these, look, there's a, there's this, uh, a crusade over here and 5,000 people accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. Well, what happens in the crusades is that those crusades, they, uh, they have sponsors and they have partner churches and they're Lutheran, Methodist, Episcopal, Catholic, Calvinist, Reformed, New Apostolic Re Reformation, the Grave Soakers. The Hillsong group. And so people say, oh, yes, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I believe. I believe. And they come up and they receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. But then they say, okay, now go to these, go to these pastors over here on the side and they're going to give you information about their church. And then now you can go to their churches. And so you have a brand new believer. They believe in Jesus Christ. And then all of a sudden, in two weeks, they're praying the rosary, worshiping Mary. You see, you have a brand new believer in Jesus Christ. And in two weeks, they're getting on a bus to go to the cemetery to go grave soaking. You see, that's the modern day crusade. Is that a good thing? People who believe in Jesus Christ laying on the, on the ground of a cemetery to soak up what they refer to as the Holy Spirit. Is that a good thing for a person, brand new believer in Jesus Christ? A baby in Christ praying the rosary, worshiping Mary, praying to angels, praying to Mary. Is that a good thing? The answer is no. And understand in the last days, 
Satan will pour out his spirit as well. And it's evil. It's demonic. Very important to understand the formula. Because we're living in the last days and Satan is pouring out his spirit. Why? Because he knows his time is short. And when the Lord becomes forgotten, who can discern? Who can discern and say, wait a second, I'm a Christian. I can't worship Mary. Wait a second, I'm a Christian. I can't go to the cemetery and lay on, lay on graves. I'm a Christian. I can't see this glitter falling from the sky or falling from the rafters. And I can't call that the Holy Spirit. Where is discernment in these last days? And I want to say something about this withholding of truth that we see with the scribes, how truth is becoming veiled, where the Lord spoke openly before. He spoke openly when engaging, asking them questions. And he spoke that way to the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious establishment. <clears throat> but because their hearts are hard and they're moving in the wrong direction because they're getting harder. Now they're plotting to kill him. And Jesus is calling on him. He says, hey, I know what you guys are up to. Speaking in parables. But something I want to say about this withholding of truth that we see Jesus do with the scribes, it also applies to leaven, the withholding of truth. It also applies to leaven. And you say, well, wait a second, you're, you're talking about, you know, uh, uh, 2,000 years ago, give or take a couple years. No, 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 no. It still applies today. And it also applies to leaven because remember in Corinth, the, the Corinthian church, where we see the separation in Corinth when the remnant separates from the leaven. Now, look at what the remnant is exposed to with separation. They're exposed to the truth. But then look what the leaven is exposed to with separation. No truth. You see, when leaven is identified, and leaven is separated from the remnant. Leaven. Because a little leaven leavens the bunch. Remember when Paul says to the Corinthian saints, Hey, you guys, your rejoicing isn't good. Picture that. Picture a church setting where, you know, everybody, you know, is worshiping the Lord, has their hands up and singing. It's like, wow, this is a good thing. But picture somebody coming up and standing at the pulpit and saying, Hey, we got a letter from Paul. And then the pastor says, Okay, read it. And then they read it, hey, your rejoicing is not a good thing. You know how offensive that is to everybody in that church setting? Your rejoicing isn't good. Look, what are we talking? What is Paul talking about? Because look, we have our worship team. The guy, he sounds like, you know, like a rock and roll band on the radio. He's got his highlights in his hair. He talks with his rock star voice. They got the smoke, they got the laser lights. And everybody has their hands up in worship. Hey, Paul, how isn't this a good thing? And yet Paul says, no, no, no. Your rejoicing is not a good thing. You know why he says? He's be he says, because a little leaven leavens the bunch. And you guys have leaven. And what is leaven? It's the works of the flesh. In the case of Corinth, three years uncorrected. Where you see the extortion, the sex, the alcohol, all these works of the flesh. And Paul says, no, no, no. He says, you got to remove the leaven. Leaven, he says, remnant, separate from the leaven. You see? And in the case of the remnant, those, the, 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 the remaining, 
Yeah, they have issues. Yeah, they have things that they've been exposed to because the, the little leaven leavens the bunch. Remember when Paul says, you know, do I, do I praise you in this? Nope. Do I praise you in that? Nope. But they're exposed to truth. You see, they can grow in truth. But leaven is not exposed to that because it's leaven. And leaven has a very, very serious choice to make. And the choice is this. Will I repent and yield to the truth or not? That's a very serious choice that leaven has to make. Will I yield to the truth or not? And with rejection of truth comes a hardening of the heart. And with no love of the truth comes something else. And it's from God. You know what it is? Strong delusion. And we see this played out. We see it told. We see it played out today in the culture in which we live, in the church culture in which we live. But we see it spoken of in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we also see it in Romans chapter 1, where God gives people over. And it happens for a reason. Because it's self-inflicted. And you see that with the scribes here in Mark chapter 3 because Jesus spoke openly with them. He spoke plainly with them. But now it's different. Because of the hardening of their heart, he speaks to them in parables. The truth is becoming more veiled. You see? And we're not at the point where Jesus just straight up says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, your whitewashed tombs. That's hearts of stone. But we're not there yet, but we're moving closer and closer and closer to that moment. But before that, you see, Jesus speaks openly and plainly with them. But then parables come where truth is starting to get withheld. And when you look at this model and when you look at this structure, the same thing happened in Corinth. You see? Where truth came and under uh, through the defunct pastors, the defunct elders, look at what happened. And then Paul says about the separation, you know, you're your remnant, okay, separate from the leaven. And now truth is not for the leaven. Truth is for the remnant. You see? And in the last days, this same model, what we see with Jesus, what we see with Paul, it's gonna be, it's been happening this whole time, but we're gonna see it. It's going to be on overdrive, a withholding of truth. I mean, there's also going to be a pouring out of truth, a pouring out of God's spirit, but it's only in the remnant. Qualified pastors and qualified teachers today, you know what they're talking about? You know what they're already in discussion about? You know what they're already praying about and discussing? A shut, you know, shutting down. Shutting down certain forms of ministries. I mean, in some areas where there's heavy persecution, pastors, they've used the, the dark web. And, you know, you look at the dark web and there's some dark things on there. But you start to see an underground church where they start to, like, have their, uh, 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 you know, access to church services and access to, you know, uh, church messages and, you know, outreach. And it's all on the dark web. But what's happening now is they're still being discovered. They're starting to be discovered. And the pastors, they're being arrested. Elders arrested. Churches burned. Christians beaten. 
And as pastors in local areas and pastors around the world, as we see the rise of persecution, I mean, you know, I pres- presently I teach from America. And in America, land of the free, you're starting to see certain limitations, even on Christians. No more freedom. You know, a, a Christian couple, they go to adopt a child and then they say, okay, you're not going to be able to adopt this, a chi- this child. And you say, why? And then the, the organization, they say, well, because you're Christians. Because you're Christians and you're not tolerant of, you know, this and that. You're starting to see this. Where if children aren't, you know, if, if they're not on board with, you know, things that, you know, sexual uh, types of sin, homosexuality, lesbianism, transgenderism, you know, you're starting to see laws being passed. Before it was, you know, laws being proposed. And now you're seeing laws being proposed and moving up the chain to where they're actually signed. Where children can be taken from their parents. Because of what they believe they say, you know, just like, you know, when like a, a, a cop pulls over, like, you know, there's a driver, you know, who's passed out in the driver's seat and the car crash and they see like, you know, the baby seats in the back and they got some babies in there. Well, you know, child protective services, they're going to come in and, you know, say, hey, you know, what's going on? They're going to investigate and they might even take the kids and put them in foster care. But you're starting to see laws being signed. Where now that's in play. Why? Because the parents are crackheads? Because the parents are alcoholic? Because the parents beat their kids? No, because the parents teach them the Bible. You see? And it's happening all over the world. And it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And there's pastors today, ministries, qualified pastors. Qualified teachers. And there are discussions and praying, you know, praying about these things where it's only face-to-face, exclusively face-to-face. Only face-to-face, tiered forms of ministry even, and multiple layers of contingencies. And this is all because what's happening, prophetically speaking, moving deeper and deeper and deeper into perilous times. The falling away. And heavy, heavy, heavy persecution. And prophetically speaking, according to Bible prophecy, the Antichrist will prevail against the saints. And these are discussions that are already underway among qualified pastors and teachers. Quickly, quickly, quickly. Find a church. Quickly, quickly, quickly. Find a church where the formula is right. The Philippian model. And if you can't, Make provisions for home fellowship, the Philemon model. Because with carnal eyes, you'll see the status quo. You'll see churches growing. You'll see pastors preaching. You'll see mega churches on TV. And you'll see that with carnal eyes. But with eyes to see and ears to hear, you'll see what is clean. You'll see what is pure. And you'll see what is holy. Only, only with the remnant as all else enters judgment you see and judgment comes first to the house of god and the door of mercy the door of mercy and grace it's gonna close which brings an end to the church age you see 
And so we look at like Mark 3 and you're like, you know, well, you know, why is he talking about all this last day stuff? We're in Mark 3. But you see this process of, you know, what happens with a hard heart, how truth is withheld, truth is veiled. But it's going to happen again where truth is veiled in the last days. And then you're going to see truth is straight up, not just veiled, truth is withheld. And then you're going to see a rise of strong delusion. And then you're going to see a rise of like Romans 1, where God gives a person over. And we're living in that era today. Precursory signs to the return of Jesus. We're living in very prophetic times. Very, very prophetic times. We're living in the last days. And so you might be wondering, like, wow, you know, there's all this last days talking all, you know, we're, we're supposed to be in Mark 3. But when we understand what happens with hearts of jello, softer than the softest jello, and then what happens with hearts that are moving closer to hearts of stone. Well, culturally, even in people on an individual basis, you see the effects of that. I mean, if you look out your window and you see snowflakes, you know, okay, it's cold outside. Where, you know, you look at a person and you see certain proclivities. You see like, wow, this, this guy is like moving, you know, fast forward to, to wickedness and into wickedness. You see? Or you see fruit of the spirit in another person. You say, like, wow, you know, this guy, this gal, she's holy. There are things that we look for. And Jesus says, you'll know them by their love. Very important to understand. And so here in Mark chapter 3, Jesus, he's speaking to the scribes. And he gives them this stark, stark warning as he speaks to them in parables. And he's calling them out in the crowd, in the multitude. Now, so Jesus is, is speaking with the multitude, with the, with the scribes in the, in the multitude. But remember, there's the biological family, you know, of Jesus, uh, you know, according to, according to Adam. You know, remember verse 21 where they think he's crazy, but he's our brother. So let's go get him from that huge crowd. Now, let's see what happens as we see these, these two factions converge or attempt to converge. Because remember, there's the, there was the, the family in the home where, you know, the, the crowd became so heavy that they couldn't even eat their bread. And so Jesus went out to the crowd and he, 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 he speaks to the scribes and, you know, calls them out and, at the same time, the, 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 the family, they say, okay, you know, the, you know our, 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 we think our brother's he's lost his mind, but, you know, let's go get him because this crowd, you know, they might be dangerous, potential harm unto him. And so they go and see, they attempt to go and see Jesus. And in verse 31, then his brothers and mother came and standing outside outside they sent to him calling him so in dr luke's account we we learned that the crowd was so big that they couldn't even approach jesus and that's in luke chapter 8 verse 19 that's how big the crowd was and so in verse 32 and a multitude was sitting around him and they said look look your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you but he answered them here in verse 33 he answered saying who is my mother or brothers? Now picture that Jesus asking this question. Who is my mother 
Or my brothers. No, notice how he speaks in parables to the scribes who whose hearts are getting harder and harder. But to everybody else, he keeps speaking plainly. Who is my mother or my brothers? Who, who are they? And so, I mean, say, for example, we were right there. We were in there, not with the scribes, but we're right there. And we look to, you know, in the distance a little bit because, you know, they can't come in because the crowd was so heavy. And we see, okay, look, there's, Look, there's there's his mom over there. There are a couple brothers, some guys over there. There's a, look, there's your family. And Jesus is asking a question. Who is my mother or brothers? And say, for example, I raise my hand and I say, hey, look, they're over there. Look, I'm, I point to them. Hey, look, there's your mom. And there's brother number one, brother number two. Look, they're right there. But Jesus wasn't speaking about according to the flesh. He's not speaking about according to Adam. The people say, look, your mother, your brothers, they're outside seeking you. Dr. Luke says that's how big the crowd was. And Jesus says, who? Who's my mother? Who are my brothers? And he looked around in a circle. We see here in verse 34. He looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Verse 35, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. Someone might look at this as offensive. Wow, Jesus, look, your family's right there. Your mom, she's right there. Your brothers, they're right there. Pointing at what is Adam. Pointing at what is of the flesh. But Jesus says, no. My family isn't there with them. My family isn't there with Adam. My family is here with God. And our Lord Jesus, Son of the Most High God, our Father in Heaven, hallowed be His name. He's showing us two camps. Two camps. One of the flesh, the other of the spirit. One of Adam, the other of Christ. One of earth, the other of heaven. And he's telling us about the better family. It's the family of the living. The family of God. Heirs of Abraham by faith in Jesus. You see? To the beautiful, beautiful, beautiful people of the way, a remnant of these last days. God bless you. I love you.